Welcome to the teaching ministry of Calvary PSL. Please join our lead pastor, Mike Wiggins, for the message, Advent. All right, if you're looking at chapter two, verse one, can you say amen again? Amen. All right, so here we go. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered, registered for a census. Verse two, this was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria, and all went to be registered, each to his own town. And so Caesar Augustus was his title, but Octavian, that was his birth name. And so Octavian was born in 63 BC. He's known for a lot of things, uh, but one of the things that he's most famous for is his very famous great uncle, and that, of course, is the legendary Julius Caesar. Julius Caesar, um, in the days of the Roman Republic, loved this guy so much, he adopted him as his, as his own, and he made him, in his will, his official heir, heir to the throne. So after Julius Caesar was assassinated in 44 BC, being stabbed multiple times by members of his own Senate, the Roman Republic went through years of unrest as different men uh, vied and struggled to rule. And so for a while, uh, three men ruled over the Roman state. Octavian, a guy named Lepidus, and another guy named Mark Antony, and so Lepidus eventually exited the scene, and the two main rivals ruling over the Roman state was Octavian on your left and Mark Antony on your right. Lots of bad blood between these two guys, but things calmed down a little bit uh, when Mark Antony married Octavian's sister. Her name was Octavia. But then the bad blood started again because Mark Antony did something that really made Octavian upset. He divorced his sister for a gal that he met down in Egypt. Does anybody remember her name? Cleopatra. So he divorces his brother-in-law's sister, Octavia, for this beautiful woman from Egypt, Cleopatra, and Octavian was furious and so a civil war in the Roman Republic was looming on the horizon. And everything came to a head in 31 BC when the forces of Octavian fought against the combined forces of Mark Antony and Cleopatra. Maybe, maybe you remember this from your studies in school at the very famous naval battle of Actium. And so after intense fighting between these two men, Octavian, uh, came out on top, he won that naval battle, and Mark Antony and his lover, Cleopatra, they had to flee back to Egypt, and later on, they committed suicide. And so Octavian was now the undisputed ruler of Rome, and he ruled from 27 BC all the way until his death in AD 14. And so not long after his victory over Cleopatra and Mark Antony, the Roman Senate recognized Octavian as Rome's first emperor. And in 27 BC, the Roman Republic ended and the Roman Empire began. And so around that same time, the Senate also gave Octavian this very lofty title. Luke mentions it, mentions it in verse one, 
They called him Augustus, also known as the Exalted One. I read in my studies this week that before uh, they gave him that title, Augustus, or Exalted One, they would only, the Romans would only use that term for holy things and places or sacred things and places. But this is how they felt <clears throat> for their first emperor. And so historically, the Roman Republic, ruled by laws, ended, and now the Roman Empire in our Bibles, um, that becomes the reality, and it's ruled by one man, the man on your screen. In his role as emperor, Augustus was able to unite all the Roman provinces, and he ushered in, in Latin, what's known as the Pax Romana, or the Roman Peace. And so now that you have the short historical background, let's reread verses one through three in your Bible. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus, Octavian, the first Roman emperor, that all the world should be registered, all the Roman world. Verse two, this was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. And all went to be registered, each to his own town. Now when Julius Caesar was alive during the days of the Roman Republic, he actually started a census. He never finished it. But now his great nephew is finishing it, the census in the Roman Empire. And so this census, it impacted the entire Roman world. You see on the screen all the green uh, provinces all around the Mediterranean Sea. The Romans used to say about the Mediterranean Sea, that's our sea. You know, just very proud, proud people. But this census, it impacted the entire Roman world and it was used for revenue, right? If there's people in your empire and they're not on the rolls, guess what? You can't tax them. But if you do a census and you write their names down, you know where they live? Now you can tax them to death. I don't know if much has changed over 2,000 years, uh, but this is what is happening in Luke chapter two. And so it's essentially, it's a poll tax. They do the census so they can tax people more efficiently. Now when the first enrollment of the census took place, Luke tells us to, that Quirinius uh, was governing in Syria. Now if you're with me right now, can you say amen? I want you to understand something if you're new to the Bible. And that is that Luke, the author of Luke and Acts, was a historian. This guy actually went around and he interviewed people for his two volume set, the Gospel of Luke and the Acts of the Apostles. He went and he interviewed people. He got eyewitness account. And then under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Luke, who was one of the mentees of the Apostle Paul, wrote down this incredible history that we have in our New Testament. And so you need to know that men that Luke refers to, Octavian and Quirinius, these are actual, real, historical figures. And so here's my point, that this book right here it's not a fairy tale. This is a real historical account. These are real people in your Bible, just like the next two people that Luke is gonna write about in verses four and five. And so please look at verse four and shout out his name. Joseph, he's a real guy. Also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, 
to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem. Why? Because he was of the house and lineage of David to be registered with Mary, his betrothed. She's a real gal. Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. We're gonna pause the Roman world. We're gonna hit play for the Jewish world. And so you need to know that 700 years before Christ, God inspired a Jewish prophet, his name was Micah, to tell everybody where the Messiah would be born. I want you to check it out. Here's the ancient prophecy, all the way from the eighth century BC. He says, but you, and I want you to shout out the name of the town, go ahead. Bethlehem. Now isn't that amazing? That was written eighth century BC. Again, please everybody look at me. This is one of the many reasons that we believe that this Bible is the breathed out word of God. Because there's not just one, there's hundreds of prophecies that were given that were literally fulfilled in history. And so no other book on the planet like this one and it predicts the town where Messiah is born. But you, Bethlehem, though you're little among the thousands of towns of Judah, yet out of you shall come forth to me, here it is, the one to be ruler in Israel. That's Messiah. And I love this, and I can't wait for Thursday, whose goings forth are from of old, from what? Everlasting. Jesus Christ was not created. He is the incarnate word of God as we just sang a little while ago. And so this prophecy, this promise was crystal clear, all right? And so the Messiah is gonna be born in Bethlehem. But humanly speaking, there's a big problem because the woman who's carrying the Messiah, who's ready to pop, she's nowhere near Bethlehem. Depending on what route you take, she's some 80 plus miles north, way up in Hicksville, (laughs) Galilee, a little village called Nazareth, and apparently she's not aware of Micah's prophecy. All right, so I have a question for all of you. I have a question for all of you who are watching right now. Is the Lord strong enough? Is the Lord able to get Mary from Nazareth all the way down in Bethlehem so he can fulfill his promise? Yes or no, you tell me. Yeah, absolutely, you know why? Because God always keeps his promises. God's a promise keeper, not a promise breaker. When God says something, he's always gonna do it because God cannot lie. And so here's my encouragement to you today. My encouragement to you is to open the Bible and memorize some of the promises of God and then believe them and step out in faith. Here's an idea. Maybe some of you need to turn the news off and stop listening to all the fear that's rehearsed in your mind over and over and over again. Turn the news off and open this book and allow the Holy Spirit to fill you with confidence and faith so you can keep moving forward in your faith. There's an idea right there. God always keeps his promises. 
And when he gives you a promise, either by the clear speaking of the Holy Spirit in your heart, uh, confirmed by an elder or someone who's spiritually above you, or the clear promises of God's word, you need to know that no matter how impossible it looks, you may be in Nazareth and he's saying Bethlehem, but no matter how impossible it is, God's gonna keep that promise in your life. And so when Jesus says, my sheep hear my voice, my sheep, and I know them, and they follow me, and I give them eternal life. Listen to the promise. And they shall never perish. Neither shall any man pluck them out of my hand. My Father, who's greater than I, who gives them to me, no one's gonna pluck them out of my Father's hand. I and the Father are one. What does that mean? That's a promise of God, that if you're saved, you're secure. And so get over the idea of doubting your salvation and move from justification to sanctification and on your way to glorification. When Paul wrote, he who began a good work in you, he might fulfill it? No, he who began a good work in you, Philippians 1, 6, shall complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. That's a promise of God. Proverbs 3, 5, and 6, trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he shall direct your paths. If you're confused this morning, you don't know which path to take, man, just take that promise to the bank. Trust your good, good father in heaven. Trust in him, acknowledge him in all your ways. He says, I got your back, I'm gonna lead you in the way. This is all good news, this is great news. And when Jesus says, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all, the, all these things, the necessities of life will be added unto you. That's a promise of God. If you'll put Christ first. Some people say, why in the world would you ever get on a plane and drive down the, or fly down to Haiti in the middle of a pandemic? Well, here's why, because we're seeking Christ first and his kingdom first. We're not gonna allow a pandemic to stop us from moving forward. We're gonna keep moving forward in the will of God. How many of you guys believe that God is God when everybody's healthy and when some people are sick? He's God, and so take his, take his promises and keep moving forward. Yes, be careful, absolutely be careful, but ladies and gentlemen, we don't put the pause button on God or the scriptures or the will of God just because we're going through something in our nation or around the world. We gotta get over our fear, and we gotta put on faith. And so, what did the Lord do to fulfill his promise regarding where the Messiah would be born. Well, he used Caesar's census to get Joseph and Mary from Nazareth all the way down to Bethlehem. Now, this is the Roman Empire. This is a big, big place. And so, of course, that would take a lot of time, but here's what you need to know, that when it was time for the people of Galilee to be registered for this census, Mary, just happens to be sticking out to here. She just happens to be in her third trimester. She just happens to be ready to pop. And so because her betrothed, her loved one, Joseph, was of the house and lineage of King David, they had to go down to Bethlehem, the city of David, and I say, wow, right? Some people would say, wow. And so as this 
is being carried out, this census, province by province, this, this little obscure area called Galilee and Nazareth, when they're ready to be registered in their hometowns, Mary just happens to be in her third trimester, ready to give birth, wow, what a coincidence. Do you guys believe in coincidences? There's no such thing as a coincidence. There's no such thing as luck. We really ought to stop saying good luck. We're Christians, right? There is no luck, there is no happen chance, and there is no coincidences. Somebody just said it, there's god because God is in control. And so we need to trust him. And so Joseph says to Mary, honey, I know you're in no shape to travel, but we gotta go to Bethlehem. And so they jumped on their donkeys and they made the trip. I've been there four times, it's rough terrain. There's no highways. And so they get on their donkeys, maybe he put her in the back of the cart, we don't know. But they made their way south, depending on which route, 80 plus miles, 20 miles a day, that's four days. You ladies who've been pregnant before in your third trimester, how hard would that be? Four days on the back of a donkey. I don't know if the rough ride caused the baby to come, to come sooner, but here's what I do know, that they made it to Bethlehem, listen to this, just in time for God to keep his promise of where the Messiah would be born. Why didn't she have the baby in all those little villages on the way there? Because God said, Bethlehem, he's in control. Just rest in him. And so we now go to verse six. If you're new to Calvary, this is what we do. Just verse by verse, because we really believe this book is God's word. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. And so when Joseph and Mary arrived in Bethlehem, it was packed with people. And I believe it was packed because there's lots of other people who are in town who have to register for this census. And that's why there's no room in the inn. And so it says now in verse six that the time came for Mary to give birth. And so that means that her water probably broke and the contractions are starting. And so no doubt she's like, honey, Joseph, we gotta get to the inn in Bethlehem as soon as possible. Now I love this part of the sermon. I learned this, I think it was my second trip to Israel. We're standing on a hill looking down at Bethlehem and our Jewish guide who um, uh, loves Jesus, by the way, uh, he's a walking encyclopedia, he taught me in our church group this truth. All right, so what does the word inn mean in the original Greek? Well, it simply means a lodging place. In the Greek, it's called a kataluma. We would call it a caravansary. And so the late Dr. G. Coleman Luck, who was the chairman of the Biblical Studies Department at Moody Bible Institute, he said this about this kataluma or caravansary. He said the caravansary is a large square edifice built around an open inner courtyard. Okay, and so in the ancient world, Archaeologists have found these in a lot of these little towns. In the center of the courtyard is a well 
And then often the building is how many stories? You tell me. You guys see that? It's often two stories with the lower one containing stalls for the beasts, the animals, and the upper story consisting of small rooms for the use of human travelers. So as we're standing on the side of the hill, looking at the fields outside of Bethlehem where the angels are gonna show up in a moment in our scriptures, um, our guide, our Jewish guide, tells us about the kataluma, the caravansary. And um, um, I am a skeptic by nature, and so I went back home and I, I, I did my studying and I found that quote from Dr. G. Coleman Luck. And so perhaps it went down something like this. Mary's contractions are starting. She's like, honey, quick, get us to the inn. So they go to the caravansary in the middle of Bethlehem. Joseph runs up the stairs to the upper level. He knocks on the door. May I help you? Hey, my wife, she's about to have a kid. We need a room. I'm sorry, there's no room in the inn. But there is room downstairs with the animals. And you can stay there if you want. And so Joseph, can you imagine this? Tells his wife, all right, this is where it's gonna happen. You know, honey, watch where you step. We're around the animals. And Mary's probably looking around at all these animals thinking, God, really? This is where you want your son to be born? And sure enough, ladies and gentlemen, the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords was born in what was essentially a stable. And I think how fitting, how fitting for the one who came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And so Joseph cuts the umbilical cord, Mary wraps the baby in um, swaddling cloths, literally strips of linen to, to protect the baby's fragile skin, and they laid him in a manger. All right, what in the world's a manger? It's a box. It's an animal feeding trough. They would pour grain into to the box so that the animals could eat. And so Joseph cleans it out. He probably puts some straw in there and he lays the baby down to sleep. And I think, wow, God didn't have to do that. God takes on human flesh and allows himself to be born in a barn. He didn't have to do that. He could have stayed up in heaven. He could have left us all in darkness. He could have left us all in our sins. He could have allowed all of us to perish. But God so loved the world. He gave his one and only son, and they laid him down in a box. Ladies and gentlemen, if you're happy for God's grace in your life, why don't you put your hands together right now and let him know how grateful that he came. He came. I tell you, some people, they come to church and they think, all right, God, you happy? I'm here. They have no idea what God did for you. And so, around this time, something amazing happens outside of Bethlehem. I want you to look at verse eight. It says, in the same region, there were shepherds out in the field. Go to Israel with us, we'll take you there. Keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, 
and the glory of the Lord shone round about them, and they were filled with great fear. So as, as these shepherds sat under the, can, can you picture it in your mind? As, the, as these shepherds sat under the stars at night, keeping watch over their flocks, everything's quiet, right? But that silent night quickly turned into a very eventful night when all of a sudden, doesn't happen every day, the angel of the Lord <laughs> appears to these guys and light from another realm just lights up the entire field all around them. And it says in verse 10 that the angel said to them, fear not. As Pastor Andrew said last week, this is usually the first two words out of an angel's mouth in the Bible. <laughs> fear not, because they're just awesome, massive beings. Fear not, for behold, I bring you, what kind of news? Good news of great joy. How many of you guys know that we need good news right now? It's right here. Again, you can keep watching television 24, hour, 24 hours a day, seven days a week, and keep getting bad news, bad news, bad news, fear, 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 or you can open the Bible and get some good news. Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people, not just some, all people. And then that classic Christmas verse in verse 11. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. I love that. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. Now why did the angel have to tell these shepherds to go look for the Messiah in a manger? Because these shepherds would never have thought to go looking for the Messiah in an animal feeding trough. These Jewish shepherds, no doubt, thought that when Messiah comes, you know, he's gonna come with great pomp and circumstance. He'll be born in a place like, you know, just a few miles north of here, in, in Jerusalem, at the temple somewhere, right? But that's not what Jesus did. Jesus humbled himself, and he became a man, and he was born in the lower level, I believe, of a caravansary, and so that's where they went. They said, a manger, an animal feeding trough. Let's go to Bethlehem. Let's go into the caravansary, lower level. There's Mary, there's Joseph, there's baby Jesus, just as the angel said, in a manger around a bunch of animals. And then something shocking, more shocking than an angel of the Lord appearing, happens in verses 13 and 14. Check it out. It says, and suddenly... There was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host. How many? 100, 200, 500, 5,000, 50,000? A multitude filled the sky of the heavenly host, praising God and saying, glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. And so after the Amazing announcement of Christ's birth. There appeared a multitude of the heavenly host in the sky. Ladies and gentlemen, listen to this. Literally, God's angelic army. And so what does that tell me? That tells me that Rome thought they were in charge, but here's the truth. The Lord is sovereign over all. <laughs> Caesar may have had his army of soldiers that reported to him. But you need to know that the army of Rome was nothing compared to the army of heaven that filled the sky that night, that army, that host that reported to God. 
And that army had this, this amazing special announcement. The king of kings is born. Now, how does this king of kings um, compare to Caesar Augustus? If you're with me here, say amen. How do the two men compare? Well, you need to know that Caesar Augustus, he eventually, A.D. 14, took his last breath, and the exalted one died. They buried him, and his body eventually rotted in the grave. But after Jesus Christ died, he rose again from the grave, and he's alive forevermore. He's alive. And guess what? When we today in America, 2020, when you hear the word Caesar, what do you think about? I think about pizza. I think about the little, the little pizza box with the little guy, little Caesar, right? He's got the spear, and he's got the pizza on the end of his spear, like pizza, pizza. But when we think about Jesus, what do we think about? We think about Isaiah 9. He's the wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace. And he is alive from the dead. He is seated at the right hand of the father. He is large and he's in charge. And he's sovereign over your life. And so listen to this. Listen to this. All things are working together for good to those who love God to those who are the called according to his purpose. All things, God is working it out for his glory and your good. There is nothing to be afraid of. And so, in verse 14, the angels sang the first Christmas carol that's ever recorded. Did you know that? Right in your Bible. Here's the first Christmas carol. Verse 14, glory to God. I love those three words in the first Christmas carol. Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. Here's your next point. The angels passionately worshiped the Lord. And I just want you to take some personal spiritual inventory in your own heart today. Don't answer out loud. But do you passionately worship the Lord? Do you worship God with enthusiasm and with excitement and with authenticity? Do you ever clap your hands? Do you ever shout? Do you ever raise your hands? Do you ever bow? Do you ever get on your knees? When's the last time you were on your, the, your knees before the Lord, your maker? And so some people are thinking, well, pastor, I don't wanna be fanatical. The angels were. The angels were very fanatical. They were excited about the Lord. And so they worshiped him with absolute passion. Some of you are sports enthusiasts. You love sports, you love your team. And in church, you're quiet as a mouse, right? But in the living room, when your team scores that touchdown, man, you're jumping up and down, you're dancing be 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 uh, between you know, the TV set and the couch, right? You're throwing popcorn, why? Because you're excited that your team scored a touchdown. Well, can't we be excited about the Lord coming to the earth? to save us from our sins? What's happened to us? Why are we so spiritually apathetic? Why are we always putting the things of the world above, the, above God? And yes, one of my jobs as a preacher and a teacher 
is to reprove, rebuke, exhort with all long suffering and doctrine. And so one of my jobs is to encourage you as we see the day approaching. One of my jobs is to be a coach, to say, team, come on, we can do better than this. Let's get in the game. Let's move forward for the Lord. He's got a plan for your life. You need to fulfill it. And so worship God with passion. I want you to check out what God's word says about worship. Here it is. Clap your hands, all you peoples. Shout to God with a voice of triumph, for the Lord most high is awesome. He is a great king over all the earth. Psalm 63, because your loving kindness is better than life, my lips, they're gonna praise you. Thus I will bless you while I live. I will lift up my hands. Don't wait until heaven to be the first time you lift up your hands. Do it here on earth. I will lift up my hands in your name. And then Psalm 95, oh come let us worship and bow down. Let's kneel before the Lord our maker for he is our God and we are the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hands. And so the Bible says, hey, clap every once in a while. Shout every once in a while. Raise your hands every once in a while. Bow and kneel every once in a while. The Bible also says sometimes be still and know that I'm God. But here's what, here's what needs to happen. It needs to always come from a place of authenticity because God sees your heart and he sees my heart. We, we need to be real. And so we constantly, how many of you guys know that the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked? We constantly be gotta, gotta be checking our motives because some people become loud and demonstrative in church services because they wanna draw attention to themselves. Of course, that's not true of anybody here. But we need to know this, that if we're trying to take people's eyes off of Jesus and onto ourselves, we certainly are not worshiping the Lord in spirit and in truth. And so, here's something else I'll throw in for free. We also gotta make sure during our church services that we never lose control. Do you know there's some churches people just absolutely lose control? They jump over pews, they run down the aisles, they fall on the ground, they shake spasmodically, they laugh uncontrollably, it's the most bizarre thing I've ever seen. They laugh one minute, two minutes, five minutes, just laughing and laughing. Some people even like run around bark like dogs. Here's the thing, it is funny. Here's the thing though. That's not worshiping the Lord in spirit and in truth. That's a work of the flesh. You know how I know? Because the Bible says, and I quote, the fruit of the spirit is self-control. Not being out of control, self-control. And so you tell me out loud, go ahead and answer out loud. Should we ever, during worship, try to draw attention to us? No. Should we ever lose control? No. But should we clap, should we shout, should we raise our hands, should we bow and kneel and passionately worship Christ? What should we do, church, you tell me. Yes or no? Yes. So let's do it. But let it be real. And now we're in verse 15. And when the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, hey, let's go over to where? Bethlehem, not to some cave outside of Bethlehem into the town. Let us go over to Bethlehem and see the thing that has happened, 
which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in the manger. And so these shepherds were so excited about what had just happened to them, right? They rush over to Bethlehem and they're looking for a baby wrapped in strips of cloth, lying in a animal feeding trough. And so again, this is what I believe. I think they went straight to the caravansary because that's where the animals were on the lower level. And they went in and there's Jesus and he's lying in the box. And I, I, I bet you these guys just kind of stared at him for a while, thinking, wow, this is the Savior, this is the Christ, this is the Lord, and now we're at our last four verses. Look at verse 17. And when they saw it, when the shepherds saw Jesus, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. They spoke it. There's no such thing as a silent Christian. Verse 18, and all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. It's like, wow, that's interesting. Verse 19, but Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds returned out to the fields outside of Bethlehem, glorifying and praising God for all that they heard and seen as it had been told to them. And so what these guys experienced was so life-changing. It was so absolutely awesome. What did they do? They went out and told other people. They became the first evangelists to proclaim the gospel. And that leads you now to this very important point, and that is when you experience Christ's love, don't you want others to know about it? See, that's a work of the Spirit in our hearts. We want others to know. I remember when I got saved, and I don't have time to get into my whole testimony, but believe it or not, I got saved in a Little Caesars pizza <laughs> in South Tampa. Somebody had given me a gospel track. Thank you to all you who pass out gospel tracks. Share your faith. There's power in God's word. And I'm just reading verses. And everything that I believed about Mike saving Mike and being good enough and God's gonna accept you was absolutely trashed by God's word. And all of a sudden, I'm reading the wages of sin is death. Uh-oh. But whew, the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. And ladies and gentlemen, when I transferred my trust from Mike saving Mike to Jesus, you're my only hope. Be my savior, be my Lord. He came in. I could feel his love coming in. And I had to say something. Listen, I didn't even know what the word evangelism meant in those days. But my dad picked me up from work. And all the way home, I'm like, Dad, Jesus, Jesus. I don't, it's been a long time. I don't remember exactly what I said to him. But I told him what had happened to me. Why? Because Christ became real. And I still enjoy sharing my testimony today. I got to do it at the pastor's conference with all the pastors around the tree. And then, unexpectedly, I found myself one evening um, standing with a group, being introduced to a group of people from outside the gate in Mir Belay, a group of Haitians. And the Lord intervened in the conversation, and I was able to turn it to share my testimony 
of how Christ saved me and I got to share the gospel with them just a few days ago. Here's my question. You can answer out loud. Do you have a testimony of how God changed your life? Just three of you? Has Christ changed your life, yes or no? Be like the shepherds. Tell other people. They need to know this incredible, incredible love. And so we're gonna close by looking again at verse 11, that classic Christmas verse. The angels said to the shepherds, unto you is born this day in the city of David a savior who's Christ the Lord. Look at these three terms, so much meaning. Savior, in the Greek, one who delivers, but it doesn't stop there, and preserves. You see that? Christ, in the original, he's the anointed one, he's the Messiah. And then Lord, kurios, in the Greek Septuagint, the LXX, the Jewish scholars before Christ, translated the Bible from Hebrew to Greek. Every time they came to the word Yahweh, they wrote kurios. That transferred to the New Testament. And you need to know, and I'll talk about it this Thursday, that our Jesus Christ is Yahweh God. 